Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast. Now, as you know, this show is brought to you by Jason Lemkin, godfather of SAS with Sasta, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC. Now, you can all add me on Snapchat at hstebbings, that's Stebbings with two Bs. But what about Jason? Well, you can't add him on Snapchat yet, so let's make a bet with Jason. Jason must be on Snapchat by a week today. Put that in your diaries, guys. Come on, a week today, Jason must be on Snapchat by the 25th of April, or else we will be distributing some of the awesome Sasta merchandise paid for by Jason to thank our wonderful listeners to the show for all your support. Sound fair? Okay, the bet's on. But back to the show today, and I have to thank Russ Fujioka at Zero for the intro for this one, as we have Russell Glass, Head of Products for LinkedIn Marketing Solutions, formerly a founder, president and CEO of Bizo, a B2B audience marketing and data platform, which from founding in 2008 to 50 million plus revenue run rate a year and over 150 employees before being acquired by LinkedIn for 175 million in August of 2014. He really is a technology entrepreneur, having founded or held senior positions at four other venture-backed technology businesses. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the co-author of The Big Data Driven Business, How to Use Big Data to Win Customers, Beat Competitors, and Boost Profits. And I have to say, this episode really was so much fun to record with Russell. Really such a tremendous guest to have on the show. So now time for the interview, and I'm delighted to welcome Russell Glass at LinkedIn. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Russell, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. And a huge thank you to Russ Fujioka for making the introduction. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Now, I'd love to kick off today with a bit of background on you and how you came to be head of marketing products at LinkedIn. Yeah, so uh, I probably uh, would be considered a pretty alternate route. I founded a company called Bizo. The whole concept of Bizo was building a platform specifically to help marketers reach the business professional audiences. And, you know, I was a B2B marketer prior to uh, founding Bizzo. I felt like there was a lack of solutions and, and even people working on solutions to help marketers solve solve these problems. And, and, and the problems for, you know, B2B marketers are very different than those of B2C marketers. I decided to found this company. We were both, I think, smart in some ways and lucky in others. And, you know, grew a great company. And, and in 2014, we ended up uh, hooking up with LinkedIn, a longtime partner who we'd been doing a great work with uh, and decided that the, the value of LinkedIn's platform, a ton of uh, amazing uh, worldwide business professional audiences growing really fast was a great fit with the value of Bizzo's technology and know-how. I came on board uh, integrated Bizzo and have been running the marketing products group ever since. And, and you left me with too much bait there. So before we dive into the theme today, which is obviously the evolution of content marketing, I'd love to discuss, and you said there were things you did smart and, and not so smart. What were those that stand out for you that, that really shine as smart moves and then not smart moves? Yeah, uh, another great question. I would say that the things we did really smart at Bizzo centered on focus and culture. Uh, on the focus side of things, we, you know, started to the company to to solve problems for marketers trying to reach business professionals. We never strayed from that focus, even though there were many opportunities. Uh, companies coming to us saying, "Hey, we'd love for you to do this for us, but for." you know, this industry, um, or, uh, for, for, for that industry. And, and 
we consistently st- said no, even though we probably could have grown faster had we had we looked at some of those opportunities. But my feeling was it was impossible for us to build the best solutions and the right solutions for our audience, again, which is this B2B marketer, if, if we diluted that focus. Number two was culture. And from the very beginning, we uh, decided that at Bizzo, we were only going to hire people that you know, we enjoyed being around. Uh, and we were only going to hire people that were truly A-plus talent. So much so that we realized there weren't enough of those people in the San Francisco Bay Area. We needed to build a company that was geographically diverse in order to make sure we could we could keep that that quality bar high enough. You know, we ended up when we were acquired, we were about 160 people. We really built a a wonderful, wonderful culture. One where still to this day we find that that people look back and, and say this is the best six, seven, eight years of their career. Mm-hmm. And, and then, again, you're giving me too much to unpack here, Russell. We're, we're never going to get through this. <laughs> but, but you said that... Well, about, we, might have, we may have to do another one. We might have to do another one. <laughs> Round two coming soon. Uh, but you said there about focus and how you know, you've know got other people wanting market expansion plays from you with Bizzo. So would you say that focus is a constraint on growth then in, in some respects? And, and how do you... Um, withdraw from from being tempted into the allure of you know higher revenues and higher growth yeah well so focus can be a constraint particularly on short-term growth i would say that it often is not a constraint on long-term growth and in fact um, lack of focus can constrain long-term growth i think though that in the short term what i see many startups and entrepreneurs getting themselves into is chasing short-term dollars. The, the problem with that is if you're, if you're focused on short-term dollars, you're often not building the right long-term solutions for the specific audiences that you care about, solving the specific problems you're trying to solve. And by the way, that is a big problem with public companies today, right? I think they get in this quarterly cycle of needing to beat earnings or beat earnings expectations, and, and you often see that they can be um, distracted from the real long-term goal uh, and what they're trying to solve, right? Atta- solving the the mission and vision that they're trying to solve for. Mm-hmm. And, and but startups do have, in some ways, similar expectations placed upon them by by VCs and investors. How would you suggest they communicate them with their investors that focus and this long-term vision is what's required, and that actually hitting ten million ARR isn't what's important right now? Well, it's it's all about expectation setting, right? I certainly think that some entrepreneurs get into a cadence with their board where it's all about hitting, you know, a very specific revenue goal in order to get your next tranche of funding and all that all that stuff. But I would say that the best entrepreneurs are the ones that A are setting expectations properly and saying to investors, look, ten million ARR would be a great goal. But more important is, for example, making sure that we get our, our customer net promoter score up to 40. Because if we do that, then we're going to have 5 more percent uh, on our renewal base, and that's going to lead to uh, more referrals, and et cetera, et cetera. Right? So basically, building for the long term should always come before the short-term you know, revenue metric hitting. Yeah. There are times when you're running a company and, and you, you, you need the cash flow and you, and you need to uh, make sure that you can balance um, those requirements with with the growth of a company. But 
But in general, I would say focus on solving problems specifically for your audiences will solve for a lot of those problems in the long run. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and now that you're at LinkedIn, and so, so two elements there being the focus and the culture, how's that altered now you're at LinkedIn where, you know, focus, it, it's difficult when you've got thousands of employees and a massive, a brilliant products, but a mass of them. Uh, and then and then culture obviously is inherently difficult to scale. So how have you seen that change since you've moved from Bizzo, well, incorporated Bizzo into LinkedIn? You know, it's interesting. I I came in to LinkedIn being wildly impressed uh, with the culture they had built and their ability to scale that culture. Uh, you know, in the 18 months since I've been here, I can can confirm that I'm more impressed <laughs> than I will. I can confirm that my point of view on this was was right, uh, and I even undervalued just how wonderful a culture LinkedIn had built, and that's I think part of why. Even though, you know, when you do M&A like this and you do, you try to bring two sizable teams together, two different market customer bases together, all the systems together, things are going to go wrong. I think culture becomes critically important in order to make sure you can get through those bumps in the road and get to the right long-term value creation that you're looking for. And And that was a very, that happened here as well. We've learned things along the way. We would have done things a little bit differently with hindsight, but because of these great culture fits and because of the product fits, I think we've ended up in a great spot and um, we're really innovating at a very fast pace right now. Now, I I, I am going to, I could chat with you for hours, but I I, I feel we need to, dive into the content marketing aspect which is what i promised to deep dive on and and we did the schedule on so let's discuss that and start from the beginning today on the evolution of content marketing itself and and before we kind of jump into it a a big thing is kind of choosing the strategy itself to pursue in the first place so for for bloggers and content marketers choosing the right content syndication tools to distribute these posts is critical so how should we go about choosing which is the right one for our startup we've created our own startup russell congratulations and how should we go about choosing it (laughs) yeah uh, absolutely i think there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of companies trying to solve different problems in the content marketing space and um, there's a lot of innovation happening. You hear this all the time, and we actually wrote a book where where we saw some of this, that there are thousands of choices, right? <laughs> Literally thousands of choices of different technologies that marketers can incorporate into uh, how they do business and companies can incorporate into how they do business. I think the, the best advice I can give is you've got to simplify the problem. You've got to bring it down to the sort of base level of, okay, first of all, who's your customer? Define who you're trying to reach. What are their titles? What kinds of companies do they work for? What problems are they trying to solve? Once you've defined your customer, really define them. Do a good job really understanding who they are, what makes them tick. Watch them work. Watch them on a day-to-day basis. Understand how they're making decisions and, and why they're making decisions. Once you understand that, then you can decide, okay, what do I need to do in order to get my content in front of these people in a way that's going to resonate? And that can help you make a much simpler decision. I, you know, the analogy I use is when you're searching for homes, if you know that you 
want a pool, it makes it far easier because you can narrow all of the homes available to you down to ones with a pool. If you know that you need three bedrooms, you narrow it even farther. And by the time you get to the three bedrooms, you need at least a two-car garage, you need a pool, and you need you know a yard for a dog. You actually have a reasonable set of homes to go look at. Same thing applies here. Narrow the problem by really knowing what your requirements are, knowing who, you're, who the people are that you're going after, and that'll help you solve this problem. And so now we've got this very defined profile, maybe even an avatar, you could say, of our kind of ideal archetypal customer. So, so now we've got that. When it comes to... You know, the, problem, the problem with avatar is, is I start thinking like swords, you know? Like, <laughs> no, there's no 3D glasses involved in the making of this podcast. Uh, yeah, but when communicating them with this customer that we've identified, you've said before that relevance is key. So, so how do you then go about de- determining the relevance of the content you're distributing to them? And is it not difficult if you have a relatively diverse customer base, if your product maybe doesn't have that inherent focus? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I, I would say that most products have core users, very specific people that they're trying to solve problems for because as you get as you get more and more diverse it's very it's hard to build product for a very diverse user base generally speaking you you have a couple of persona you know in, we call them persona versus avatars but but you know persona <laughs> or avatars that you're targeting you know what you're really looking to do is understand the life cycle of their needs and where they are in that life cycle as someone is just discovering they have a problem uh, that your solution can solve for them, or, or they're starting to do research, or they're starting to price out solutions, uh, they're checking references, they're looking at case studies, or they're actually making a buying decision. At each stage of that life cycle, they have certain needs, information needs, in effect. And if you can, as a marketer, help them with those information needs at the right part of that journey, of that decision-making, that's when you are relevant. That's when you uh, are able to become, you know, transcend being marketing material and move into the, into the actual content universe and move into the information universe and talking of kind of transcendence of marketing there gosh that sounds very intellectual god i should frame that uh but but talking of that transcendence um what to what extent then do you think we're currently in an ecosystem where actually content marketing is integrated with sales and customer onboarding yeah we're still in the early stages i think it's a goal of many forward-thinking organizations to get there you know, I look at a Slack as an example of a company that's trying to, to move away from the sales model and move very much into the content and information model and putting the right um, content in front, of, in front of buyers at the point of need. I think that, you know, Amazon is another example of a company that, you know, by, by leveraging this massive amount of purchase information, both, you know, what people have purchased and what they haven't purchased, but they've looked at. And what other people like them have purchased, uh, but haven't purchased, and using all of that detail, that 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 data to make um, good content decisions and and distribute that at the point of need, we're starting to see a world where the sales need actually is getting is re- is getting reduced over time, and a salesperson at the end of the day is becoming increasingly 
um, a later stage interaction where by the time a salesperson is talking to a prospect, that prospect is also already very self-educated. And they may have a handful of questions and they may want to know the face of the company that they're going to be interacting with before making a decision. But, but that the time that they're spending with a salesperson is, is vastly reduced. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned the data there. And I'd love to then ask, how important a role do you think data will play in the continuing expansion of marketing itself, do you think? Oh, it's the whole, it's the whole thing. As they say here, it's the whole enchilada. You have that. <laughs> uh, uh, we don't, but I'll go with it, just like you went with Avatar. So there you, know. you go. Right, exactly. It's a compromise. Uh, so, so it's the whole enchilada. You know what I mean by that is, you cannot effectively do marketing at scale today without contemplating again who your personas are, what their what their needs are understanding their digital footprints, right? So what are they looking at? How are they consuming it? Understanding the value of your very best customers and the attributes of those customers so that you can go out and target more of your very best customers. All of that goes into this mix of you know, creating the right content that can be relevant at the right time in that buying process and ultimately can allow you as a marketer to become increasingly efficient as you grow. The, the goal here is as you get more and more customers and they provide you with more and more data about who your best customers are and how to convert, that should make you more efficient over time in getting your next customer. You know, if you can, if you can solve for that, which I think is, you know, it's gotten increasingly easier to do you should be able to build a, a world-class marketing organization. And one thing I'm intrigued with, sorry, going back very quickly to to focus, and we said that about focus earlier, and in terms of the platforms that we actually choose to distribute this content on and measure the data on, should we apply that same focus to the platforms we're distributing on? You know, should we be medium and blog focused or should we have a vast array of we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Snapchat? It depends on your customer. You know, some some customers are on all these different platforms, uh, are receptive to um, content on all these different platforms. Some customers aren't. You know, some customers are going to spend their time on, let's say, industry uh, trades, but but they're not spending any time on Instagram. It's kind of a waste of effort to be on Instagram if your customers aren't there. So it really depends on your those again those people you're going after, those personas. It really depends on the life cycle of decisions they're making and the, where they're going to be ready to consume the content that they need to make these good decisions. And again, you know, if you take a step back, you go back to the sales question. At the end of the day, the reason content marketing is becoming so important and so valuable, you don't have that salesperson interaction throughout the buying process anymore. So that content has to replace what the salesperson was was actually communicating prior. And if you think about that, it's really easy for, for a salesperson or at least one that's you know decently worth their salt to say, hey, you know, Harry, uh, what are you looking for? How can I help? And you might say, well, this is what I need. This is my problem. And the salesperson can then frame the content based on exactly what that person just asked for. Mm-hmm, absolutely. That's an effect what the marketer now needs to do with content marketing. But they don't have the benefit, in all cases, of somebody saying, this is exactly what I'm looking for at this time. And so they've got to you know, figure that out through data, 
through prior success, through testing, through, uh, through content. Would you say then that content marketing can itself effectively reduce customer acquisition costs through kind of tapping up um, potential customers prior to making the buying decision? Oh, it absolutely does. It, it both, it both uh, decreases cost of acquisition, but it also increases basket size because customers um, are more educated as to the, the breadth of solutions uh, before they get into a purchase decision. Well, I'd love to dive into a, a quick fire round called the 60 second Sasta. So I say kind of a statement and you hit me with immediate thoughts about 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Well, am I, am I wearing a sword? Is this, what's my avatar look like here in this 60 second Sasta? I'm going to send an avatar after you if you go over 60 seconds. How about that? <laughs> Okay, let's dive into it. So, so which SMB marketer do you believe is is particularly effective or most impressive to you? American Express is consistently uh, doing a great job. What I was going to say, what do they do that really impresses you? Then, what about them is so uh, strategically impressive? Yeah, they have a lot of different products, and they do a great job of personalizing the experience. They do a great job of really understanding who their persona. Are so that they get down to the very specific targeting uh, who they're going after, and they're able to then put the right kinds of content and messaging in front of those uh, prospects in order to convert them. Awesome, fantastic! No avatar for that one. Uh, and then the biggest learning from the LinkedIn acquisition. What, what was the real takeaway from the uh, incorporation into LinkedIn? Yeah, great question. I would say that the biggest learning for me. Uh, personally, has been the difference between when you're a kind of a 160 person company, you make a decision and you go, and you it's very natural to to very quickly course correct along the way. When you're at a 10,000 person company, there are requirements to think a little bit longer, test a little bit more before you just go, because course corrections are more expensive. That's been a big learning. The sort of difference between the small and big company uh, decision making cadence. Mm-hmm. And then what's your favorite blog or newsletter? I'm intrigued by this one. I would say, I mean, truly my favorite um, is probably Dig. I love uh, Dig. Which, yeah, I just, they, they do a wonderful job of... of uh, I find finding educational content that's really kind of out there and I wouldn't normally find, uh, but highly relevant, still the same. Yeah, exactly. What I was going to say is they do a wonderful job of curating content that I wouldn't see otherwise. And you learn something from every article. I had Gary Liu on the show, who's CEO, and he said that was their mission with each and every bit of content. We want you to go away having learned something. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but back, back to the 60 seconds after. Sorry, I should send an avatar after myself now. Uh, why are all MBAs wanting to be product managers? Help me out on this recent evolution. It's, it's driving me nuts. That's really funny. Well, you know, the, the old adage is that... Uh, as soon as, as the, the Harvard MBAs uh, all want to do something, it means that it's kind of the end of that. Uh, it's as, the end of the life cycle. <laughs> the life cycle, exactly. And I think, I think, you know, there's some truth to that. I think partially because most MBAs are somewhat risk adverse. And um, so they're, they're following trends versus creating them. Otherwise, you know, they, they would, a, lot of, a lot of people that are creating trends self-select out of an MBA. That said... Right. I think MBA can be a very valuable degree. And I think that the reason that they want to go into product management is 
you get to touch all parts of a business and all parts of a life cycle. You really are the the hub of um, of an organization. Uh, it's it's an amazing role, right? Other than being the CEO of a company, it's the only role that I personally would be interested in. Uh, functional role in an organization, and um, you know, so I think I think that's probably why a lot of them are, are excited about it now. Not, uh, in addition to nobody wants to go into finance anymore. <laughs> Very good. In addition, there quickly to end on that one, uh, but but no, and then we're not in sixty seconds faster anymore. And going back to the evolution of content marketing, then I've got two more for you, and that is kind of with the growing impetus and, and emphasis around content and its importance. Uh, you know, there's there's a huge amount more roles within it, from cohort analysis to customer lifestyle lifecycle marketing so due to this expansion in the physical role uh should we see an expansion in the physical teams and specialization within each member of the team to each function do you think that's the solution yeah i would say in some cases but not necessarily i think i think part of what's important about how you build sort of the next generation marketing team is culture right you're 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 bringing people on to the team who are very comfortable with data. They're curious. Uh, I, I heard an expression once called, you know, bright-eyed, right? They're bright-eyed people. They're looking to really understand versus uh, just seeing. Those kinds of people, I think, are the marketers of the future because they're the ones who naturally want to test, iterate, test, iterate. They're the ones who really want to understand the root cause of uh, what's working and what's not. And those are the ones who ultimately are going to make the best kinds of decisions across all, you know, whether it be content marketing, whether it be your, your outbound marketing, your inbound marketing. So to me, it's having those kinds of people, not necessarily more of them, just the right kinds of people for this next generation of marketing. And, and how do you test then that data-driven approach within candidates when you're in that hiring process? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the one of the tips that I gave my team is to ask why questions instead of asking what questions. So most most resumes are set up as what documents. Most interviews are set up as what uh, what sets of questions. But really, to understand how somebody ticks, you want to ask them why questions. Why did you go to that university? Why did you decide to take that job? Why did you leave that job? Why did you decide to get into product management? I mean, I've even asked people, why did you decide to bulletize that list and color your name slightly differently on your resume? And what you see from how people answer why questions is a thought process. How do they, how do they solve problems? Why do they solve problems? What makes them curious, right? Did they bulletize that? Because I don't know. I just thought it looked good, right? That's one answer. But there might be an underlying, oh, I saw, you know, synergy with LinkedIn and, and kind of medium blue and thought it might be a good alignment. And then you're like, oh, wow, that's a really thoughtful person or whatever. Whatever that, it is, that's right. You you get a ton from how they answer that question. Well, well, Russell, uh, obviously, uh, we need to have you on the show again because we, we barely scratched the surface with you in the, t- in the time that we put aside for the interview. But I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time today to be on the show. I really have seriously enjoyed chatting with you. And thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Yeah, ton of fun. Thanks, Harry. Please hang up and try again.
And again, I'd like to say a huge thanks to Russ Fujioka at Zero for the introduction to Russell. And I'd like to say again, a huge thank you to Russell for being such a fantastic guest with us today and sharing his incredible story with Bizzo. And do not forget the bet we made at the beginning. Jason Lemkin on Snapchat by the 25th of April. That's one to put in your diary. And for the show notes for today's episode, head over to sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com to see the full show notes. And we would love it if you're enjoying the show. If you could leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, it really would make such a big difference. Thank you so much, as always, for your continued support, and we look very forward to bringing you our Friday episode with Nicholas Desain at Algolia.